You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, church. I am uh, stoked to do this. I've been out of the pulpit just a little too long. I, I traveled, went to India, came back, and then I had to follow up Matt, which I'm not going to lie, I have a lot of anxiety about this. And I know you're like, Sam, you preach all the time. Matt's only preached twice. But he finished exactly on time. Like to the second on time. And there's so much pressure now. And I just can't handle it. So uh, there's that. And we started late this morning. It's like, I feel like Lane was like, I know Sam's anxious about this. So I'm just going to just stick it to him. Um, which there it is. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Uh, so we're in, uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark today, continuing our, our study that we've been doing for a while. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'm, I, we say this every week, but we just really, really value um, the Word of God and access to the Word of God. And so if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles at the end of each aisle. You can uh, just give a look to someone sitting on the edge and they'll pass you one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to make sure that you have uh, a nice copy of the Bible that you can have and use and, and study. Um, as you guys are turning to Mark chapter 12, we're going to be in verse 13 today. I want to give us a quick little reminder. Um, we didn't do this in the announcements just because I wanted to actually take a second and talk about it. So this Wednesday night, we're doing our winter revive night. If you, you guys know, we do these once a quarter, three or four times a year-ish. Um, and usually we go out somewhere and we just spend a night uh, in prayer and worship. Um, it's just a really low-key night. Those of you guys who've gotten to go to those know they're really refreshing. We just, we just leave that space excited and revived, refreshed in the Lord. Uh, this go-around, so this Wednesday night, uh, 7 o'clock, our normal time for, for Revive Night, we're actually going to meet with a church here in uh, Ellisville. So we're going to be meeting in the campus of West County Bible Church, and if you've never heard of that, it's because it's tiny. <laughs> so if you head down Hutchins, down there to Fressel, there's a Baldwin, or Ellisville Elementary School is right there. West County Bible Church is across the street from them. It's a tiny little church, uh, only 20, 20, 30 people. Um, and I've just been getting to know the pastor a little bit. And uh, they've graciously invited us to let, to let us use their space uh, for really, really cheap. And we just want an opportunity to bless uh, a, a little older church in our in our community. So we're going to go there this Wednesday. We're going to have our normal revive and worship and pray and be excited and get to spend some time uh, serving a fellow church here in West County. So please be a part of that. Uh, the, the, again, it's like a half mile from where we're standing right now. It'll be really cool. Um, there'll be an email that goes out about it Tuesday as a reminder. But anyway, we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read us our text starting in verse, where are we at? Verse 13. It says this, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
So Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And this is the word of the Lord. What a great text. I mean, what a great text. It's, it's relatively famous. If you've spent a lot of time in church, you've probably heard this talked about it, heard it preached before. Um, most of these last few stories we're going to engage in the Passion Week, Jesus's last week on life. Most of these interactions are pretty famous within Christianity. If you haven't spent most of your life in church and haven't heard this preached, buckle up, because it's a good one. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be fun. Um, but, but again, most of us have probably heard this discussed at some point. And if that's you, I really want to encourage you to slow down and intentionally be present today. I really think God has something fresh and something powerful to speak to us from his word today. And so if you've heard this text preached a million times in your tenor in Christianity, I would encourage you uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak something fresh and new today. Can we all, can we all come together and do that? Awesome. So we're in this text that's a part of a larger section of Mark. So uh, we've transitioned, right? We talked about how the first big chunk of Mark is Jesus ministering in Galilee in the northern part of Palestine. He's traveling around telling people God is doing something new. He has a kingdom. You can be a part of it. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's the beginning of Mark. And he travels around. And then there's this point where he lets the cat out of the bag and he lets his disciples know, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for right? I am him. I'm the guy. And they're all like, this is awesome. And they start heading towards Jerusalem. And that was the last section of the book we went through, this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, where Jesus is over and over telling his disciples, listen, I am the Messiah, but the Messiah is not what you think it is. You need to let go of your expectations. The, the people, remember, thought that Jesus was going to lead an army in a revolution and conquer Rome. And Jesus just said, I'm not about that noise, Right? I'm not here to lead an army. I'm not here to free you from Rome. I'm here to do something bigger than that. I'm actually going to die, and I'm actually going to raise again. And they didn't understand it. Well, then, when we've transitioned now into this, this, this third section of Mark, where Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and we've transitioned into what theologians call the Passion Week. This is Jesus' last few days on earth, spent in Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover before his arrest and crucifixion, which will be kind of uh, the, the ultimate, the coming together of the book, the last section. But the section we're in right now is really important. It's really important because it's pretty foreign to us as modern Western readers, but it's vital to Mark's overarching message about who Jesus is and what he's doing. So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and what we're going to see over chapters 11, 12, and into 13 is this series of conflicts where the religious leaders of Jerusalem essentially come and challenge Jesus's authority to teach, to be there, to be a rabbi. And they're going to engage in the, the, the only thing I can give you to like give context for this is like, imagine a rap battle and a debate had a kid. And that's what Jesus is going to do with the religious leaders for the next two chapters. 
They, they come to him with these challenges, these questions, these traps. And this kind of really intense back and forth rhetoric was actually something that was common amongst the Jewish rabbis of this day. One of the things they taught the rabbis was how to speak in questions and how to set up vocal traps for each other and things like that. And so these guys are coming to Jesus essentially to get into this weird theological battle with him and publicly discredit him in front of everyone. And the reason they're doing that is because Jesus is not just in Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. So he's, he's here during Passover, which if you don't know what that is, it's essentially one of the largest feasts or holidays in the Jewish tradition. And one of the things that makes it unique is, well, first off, it's, it's celebrating or commemorating God's freeing of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt, right? So if you jump back to Exodus and you read about the plagues and let my people go and that whole deal... God himself sets up this feast day to say, once a year, I want you to eat this special meal with your family so that you can remember that I freed you from slavery. And so Passover has become one of the largest, most important feasts or holidays for the Jewish people. And one of the things that makes it interesting now in Jesus's day in the, in the first century where we're reading our text is that this was a feast day where people were expected, if they were able to, to journey to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. Now, God doesn't actually describe it that way when he gives them the feast in Exodus, but, but it has become this by Jesus's day. Uh, the Passover week is basically the most crowded week in all of Jerusalem. So the religious and political capital of the Jewish people is full of the most Jewish people it will be full of all year long. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up. He shows up with all this pomp and circumstance, makes a big deal out of showing up, and he spends a week hanging out in the temple, the, the place that is central to the worship of God, according to the Jewish people, and he's just ripping the temple worship apart. Just shredding it. Every word that's coming out of Jesus' mouth while he's in Jerusalem is just bashing the temple and the religious leaders and everything they're doing to worship God in Jerusalem. See, what we see, and in what Mark's trying to tell us here, is that, remember, Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He's saying God is doing something new. He has a kingdom. You can be a part of it. And now he showed up to the place that is supposed to be God's presence on earth where God's people can come and engage him and worship him. And Jesus is saying, you all have screwed this up. This is not what God intended. This is not how it is supposed to be. And he just lays into them. And so the religious leaders get upset. And they're coming at Jesus, trying to discredit him, trying to get his followers to leave him, trying to embarrass him. And in fact, as Mark 3 tells us, trying to find a way to kill him. Jesus' teaching is upsetting the boat and rocking things so much, the religious leaders are just like, we're not going to do this. We're going to kill you. We'll do anything we can to get rid of you. We even see this when Mike Bird was here. Jesus walked into the temple and began flipping over tables and yelling at people. And the next day he comes back and just starts casually teaching in the temple. Which is where we pick up the story. He's, he's, he's in the temple, he's teaching, after he's made this huge raucous. He teaches this parable that is a very thinly veiled critique of the religious leaders. He tells this story, Matt told us about it, he tells this story of a vineyard owner who has terrible tenants who beat up all his messengers and kill his son. And, and the, the, 
the image behind the metaphor is, listen, God owns the vineyard. It's right here. It's his temple. And you guys, he's given it to you to take care of, and you're doing a terrible job. And they get really upset. And in our text, two groups get sent to test Jesus. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus with this public question. Hey, Jesus, you're an awesome teacher. You're not swayed by people. You're all about theology. You're all about the truth. You're all about doctrine. Should we pay taxes? What do you think? That's a weird question to us, but in this context, this is so loaded on so many levels. This is a, this is a weighty question for a couple of reasons. And the first one is this. The, the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin is the term for like the high council of the Jewish people, is made up of four or five different sects, different kind of beliefs, different close, closest to what we would think of as like political parties, but it's deeply religious in nature also. The main ones are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are the two largest parties in power during Jesus' day. But you also have zealots, you also have Essenes, and you also have Herodians, these, these different kind of, those are the third parties, right? Libertarians and stuff. Uh, so the Sadducees and the Pharisees are the main ones in power. The Pharisees are the conservatives of Jesus' day. The Pharisees hold this belief that they have been conquered by Rome and God's wrath is upon them because God's people broke the covenant God made with Moses. They have sinned and they have disobeyed. And so Romans' oppression over Israel is God's wrath, God's punishment on his people. And so the Pharisees said, if we want to be free from Rome, we have to go back to our religious roots and we have to be righteous people who obey the law. And so the Pharisees spent countless man hours digging through the laws of the Old Testament and trying to find ways that maybe people were inadvertently breaking laws. And so they added on what they called hedge laws. where They're like, listen, if the law says don't do this, let's tell people don't do this so they don't even come close to doing this. These are the most radically conservative, or probably the mainstream, the conservative side of the debate. They hate Rome. They hate the oppression, and they're calling God's people to be distinct and set apart, to be truly Jewish, to separate themselves from the Romans and obey the Jewish law so that God will lift his wrath from them. The Herodians are a smaller group, and they could not be more opposite from the Pharisees. See, King Herod was a Jewish king who got put in power over Palestine by the Roman emperor, and he essentially modernized Israel. He did a ton of work to make Palestine a good Roman like colony area. He was trying to build up Palestine's reputation amongst the larger Roman Empire. And so he, West, or, uh, he Hellenized the cities. He made them very Greek. He brought aqueducts to Jerusalem. He built ports. He did all these different things. Um, and he essentially blasphemed almost all of the Jewish traditions. He's a weird guy. And a mixed character. He's really evil. He killed a bunch of people. Killed like half his family because he was paranoid. But the thing that's important for this setting is the dude was as Greek as you could be. He was as Roman as you could be. And there were a certain set of Jewish people who looked at Herod and said, this is salvation for our people. We can't beat the Romans. We're not going to beat the Romans by being more Jewish, by going backwards. This is what the world is like now. If we want to survive, we need to become Roman. And so the the Herodians were as Hellenistic and modern as possible. 
And so to think of the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together around anything is crazy. I think it's tragically ironic to note that the only thing that actually brings together the divided religious leaders of the Jewish people is hatred for God. Right? They hate Jesus so intensely that they come together to try and publicly trap him and humiliate him. And so they render this question, Jesus, you're awesome. You're great. You're not swayed by human appearances. They're, they're flattering him, right? Which actually is a pretty, pretty common way of addressing a respected rabbi, the way they speak. But it's, it's ironic to note that they very obviously don't believe anything they're saying about Jesus right here. Even though we know as the reader that it's actually true that Jesus does speak the truth, that he isn't swayed by human opinion. But they speak these flatteries over Jesus. You're such a great rabbi. Hey, answer this question for us. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this is a super loaded question. Remember, the Jewish people are oppressed by the Romans in really terrible ways. The taxes that have been levied against the people of Palestine are crushingly oppressive. Now, in Jerusalem, kind of the metropolitan part of Palestine, they might be survivable because people generally live in more wealth but when you go up to Galilee, where Jesus is from, in rural, more farming parts of Palestine, these taxes are killing people, literally. They're, they're so oppressive that people are starving to death to pay their taxes. In fact, just a few short years before Jesus' ministry, a guy named Judas of Galilee led a rebellion against the Roman government specifically over this tax. He said, we can't afford this. We want to be good Roman citizens, but you're killing us. And he led an armed revolt against the Romans who then went and crushed and destroyed like a third of Galilee. So the Pharisees look at Jesus and they go, well, this guy's a rabbi from Galilee. Those are his people. He's got strong opinions about taxes. <laughs> Guarantee he does. So let's drop him this question because we're in the middle of Jerusalem, which is the seat of Roman power in Palestine. And he can't answer it. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes because there are Roman guards right outside and he can get arrested and killed, then he'll lose all of his followers because they're all Galileans. If he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes and he keeps his followers, then we can just turn him into the police and they'll arrest him as an insurgent. We've got him. It's a great trick question. It's a trap. They've laid it. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? I love this because the trap is brilliant. It really is, contextually. But Jesus is God. So, you know, it's like, eh, sorry guys. <laughs> that was good, but he's God. Not good enough. Jesus' answer is brilliant on so many levels. I want to walk you through this really quickly because I want to get to where we're going. So he says, hey, let me see one of the coins. Let me see one of the coins you're supposed to pay for the tax. And so they bring him a denarius. Uh, we have a picture of a denarius. You can see it. This is what the coin would have looked like, something similar to this. They, they had a little bit of difference. This is called a Tiberian denarius, the silver coin that was used by the Roman people during this time. It was the specific coin used to pay this tax. So on one side, you have uh, Emperor uh, Tiberius. On the other side, you have his mom, who's represented as the, uh, the priestess Pax, uh, the, the, uh, the goddess of peace. Um, and essentially what this says on it, uh, I don't read this stuff, but <laughs> what well, Google tell me, it tells me it says. Uh, the front says, um, 
Emperor Caesar, or Emperor Tiberius, son of Augustus, son of God. Uh, it's declaring uh, kind of the Roman uh, government cult religion that Caesar is himself divine. And on the other side is a picture of a goddess, and it says the Roman peace. And so this coin, one of the arguments used by the more extreme religious people in Palestine, is that this coin is blasphemous. It declares a false religion. You can't use it. We can't honor it. We can't submit to that. We cannot be God's people who follow the law and also walk around with coins that declare Caesar is God. We just can't do that. It was one of the big arguments. And so Jesus says, hey, let me see one of the coins. And what's brilliant is Jesus doesn't have one, right? He asks for one. And the people who are there to trap him definitely have one. And so they hand him the coin. They, they've, they've brought the blasphemous coin into the temple. And Jesus is like, let me see that for a second. And so before he even answers the question, Jesus has already on some level discredited his accusers, which is crazy to me. And he looks at the coin and he says, whose picture is on it? Which is a dumb question because the picture is the center of the controversy around the coin, right? And they go, well, Caesar's picture is on it. And he goes, well, I'm just a small town rabbi. But seems to me, he doesn't say that. He says, <laughs> he says, it seems to me if Caesar's picture's on the coin, it's probably his. You should give it to him. What a brilliant answer, <laughs> right? He just goes, well, I mean, if you're into it, if that's your deal, it looks like it's his coin. Give it back to him. What I think is so interesting about this is that Jesus knows he's being trapped. He knows he's being drawn into a petty argument that has nothing to do with his actual mission. And yet because he is our loving and gracious and present God, he actually meets these people exactly where they are. And before he does anything else, he actually really clearly answers their question. What he essentially says here is, listen, you're trying to make a big deal about how evil the Roman government is and how you hate them and they're so oppressive and you don't want to be a part of their system. But you got their coin in, their, in your pocket. You're using the Roman government. You're participating. If you got the coin and it's got his face on it, you got to give it to him. It is what it is. I love that answer. Because Jesus basically cuts through the junk and says, you're trying to make it into this big deal, but you are obviously complicit in the system. If you hate it that much, why do you have those coins? If you hate the Roman government that much, why do you walk on their roads? Why do you use their aqueducts? Why do you live in their city? Come on. You're, you're complicit in the system. So pay the tax. Now, we could go off on a total tangent here about what this means for Christians today living in government and, and what it means to honor the, the governments you participate in and what the difference is between people living in modern Western countries who have the ability to influence the direction of their government versus the first century Christians who were living in domineering, oppressive government. We, we could get into all that, um, but, and honestly, that stuff interests me because I'm a theology nerd, and so if you want to talk about that stuff, let's get out and get a coffee and we can dig deep on it. But the reality is it's not the point of this text. So we're not going to go there right now. Needless to say, Jesus says, you got the coin, you got to pay the tax. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. But what's so amazing about this 
is he, he meets them where they are, he answers the question, he speaks a gospel truth into the actual question, but then the, as the way Jesus always does, he pushes it to the next level. He redirects the discussion to the actual gospel, to the actual issue, to the actual heart of the matter. Because he says, Caesar's image is on the coin, it's probably his coin, you should give it to him. How about you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? And then he finishes it by saying, but render unto God the things that are God's. Now that's a powerful statement. If Jesus is implying that the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, we should ask the question, if we're to give to God what belongs to him, what bears his image? Well, Genesis 1.27 tells us that we bear his image, Right? We're made as as humans, made special and unique by God, bearing his image for his purposes, for his glory, for his kingdom. And so what Jesus says here is, listen, you're talking about money and governments and roads. Pay Caesar his tax. But let's step back up and talk about the real issue. You actually owe something to God as well, and it's you. You bear his image. You're his. Surrender yourself unto him. It says they marveled at his answer. Because in a lot of ways, he totally short-circuited their argument. They thought they had him trapped, and he just sidestepped it and made them look foolish. But also, because he cut to the heart of an issue here. They're standing in the temple. They're standing in the place that, according to the scriptures, God designated and ordained for the nations to come and meet with him. For, for the sinful, broken, hopeless, dying world to come and meet its creator and find hope and life. And Jesus is standing in that temple, watching people trade money and rip each other off and argue about petty political and theological points, and no one is connecting to the person of God. And he cuts through it and says, here's the answer to your question, but you're missing the point. You are missing it. Which ultimately is Jesus' entire critique of the temple. See, this whole section of Mark, Jesus shows up at the temple and he gives his judgment on the temple worship. And his judgment is this. God has a kingdom. Kingdom is coming. I'm inaugurating it. You can be a part of it. And this, this isn't it. You guys have missed it. God is right in front of you and you have missed it. This is Jesus' judgment of the temple worship. And beloved, this should be a little scary to you. When we talk about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essenes and the Zealots, these religious leaders in Jesus' day, these people were brilliant theologians who scoured over the text, who memorized entire books of the Bible. And we're not talking about like Ephesians. They didn't have those ones. We're talking about like Isaiah. They would speak these prophecies from memory, they would, they would pour over them and learn these things. And they, they dedicated their lives 
to understanding their God and, and how they might please Him and connect with Him and how they might find freedom from sin. And yet here they are, standing in God's temple that He designed and handed to them, standing in the presence of God Himself in Jesus Christ. And He says, you have totally missed it. You have totally missed the point. You are far from the kingdom. That should terrify us as modern Western believers who have access to more theology and sound biblical teaching and doctrine and church life than any Christians in the world or in Christian church history. You can be drenched in sound doctrine and you can miss God. And you can miss what He's doing and what He's calling you to. And you can miss the freedom and the life He's inviting you into. This should give us pause. We should reflect on this. Jesus' critique of the temple is really important for the modern church. Because we have a lot in common with the Pharisees, if we're honest. And so Jesus gives this call. He says, God's image is on you. If Caesar's picture is on the coin, it's probably his coin. If God's image is on you, you're probably his. Render yourselves unto God. That's a beautiful statement on one hand, right? Like, I feel like pretty much all of us in here can hear that and be like, yeah, that sounds like a good churchy theological thing we could probably make a worship song out of that and lane would blast it and it would be awesome like we could do that but think about that for a minute jesus is saying you are owed to god he owns you you don't have that right over yourself that's actually really intense that's actually really intense right One of the main arguments I hear in discussions with people about Christian ethics and Christian morality and Christian theology, I'll hear people say, if God is the God of the universe, why does he care if me, a little insignificant speck on a planet at a specific point in time, tells a lie or has sex or does whatever? Why would the God of the universe care about that? I have no idea, to be honest with you. That's my answer to that. I have no idea. But he does, and you're his, and you don't really get to do anything about that. That's a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) Beloved, if what the Scripture teaches is true, then God is your creator. God is your king. He has dominion over you, and you are owed to him. And that's intense. That pushes a lot of our Western individualistic buttons, right? I don't like the idea of owing myself and owing my allegiance to a king. That sounds oppressive. That sounds, that sounds like slavery, not freedom. That doesn't sound like life and joy, right? You know, that's what Jesus describes to us. You know, just a few verses later... On in this chapter, Jesus is going to say this. The most important commandment is this. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Beloved, that's all of you. If, if God is your king and you are owed to him and you render yourself unto him, then you are giving him your whole person. You are giving your love and allegiance to him with all of your heart, all of your emotion, all of the feeling of your person, all of your soul, all of the intangible pieces of you, all of your mind, all of your reason and your desires and your personality and your logic and your dreams and your hopes, all of your strength, every atom of your body, every piece of your physical self, all of you is given to him. And that's a big ask, right? So how the heck do you do that? And do you even want to do that? Right? Because if we slay it out there as it actually is, you know, Jesus' teaching for the whole book of Mark has been really cool to think about as a church. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming. He is taking back what is rightfully His from the sinful, broken, oppressed world. He is the strong man who's going to come and bind up Satan and free the oppressed and free the captives and draw them back to Himself. That sounds really beautiful, but now standing in the temple, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter and He says, listen, God is not freeing you unto yourself as though you are a king in your own right. God is the king. It's his kingdom. And he's coming to take back what is his. The curse, sin, brokenness is disconnected God's creation from him. And Jesus is God coming back and invading a cursed and broken world and taking back what is rightfully his. And beloved, that includes you. You. As a person with will and agency and desires and hopes and dreams and strong opinions, you are a part of what God is taking back and claiming for himself. And if that doesn't push some of your buttons, you are lying to yourself. It's why this world is sinful and broken in the first place. Because we bear the image of God. Because he's made us creatures of will and agency, and we don't like to submit. Sounds like a dirty word to us. And when we see the destruction wrought by our sinfulness, it can bring us enough to our knees to say, Jesus, come and save us, we need you. But when Jesus comes as the loving, blessed, sacrificial, serving, self-giving Savior, when He comes as the suffering servant who bears the punishment for your sin, when He comes, as, as Mark 10 tells us, and He gives His life for the people who should be serving Him, and He serves the people who should be serving Him, and He gives and gives. And When Jesus comes as the loving, amazing, sweet Savior, beloved, He also comes as the triumphant reigning King. 
And those things cannot be separated. Jesus is Savior and Lord. And he is declaring that here. I am Lord. Your Im- my image is on you. Surrender yourself unto God. And if we're honest, that feels oppressive. That feels hopeless. Right? Because that's what the world has taught us. When the balance of power changes and you move from one dictator to another, pretty much the people at the bottom stay at the bottom and the things don't really change. And so when we hear Jesus saying, God's kingdom is coming and I'm taking things away from Satan and I'm taking them away from the curse and I'm claiming what is rightfully mine, there is something in our heart, there is something of the experience we've had in a broken and cursed and sinful world that tells us that doesn't sound hopeful, that doesn't sound like good news, that just sounds like a new tyrant. That sounds like someone else telling me what I can and cannot do. That sounds like someone else rendering taxes on me, but you're telling me this isn't even a money tax? This is literally every aspect of my person? There's something in our hearts that just says, I don't want to submit to that. Right? But beloved, let me tell you the good news. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Beloved, there is something in us that bristles at the thought of submitting to another. But I have such good news for you. You were made for God. You were designed for him. Every atom in your body lines up perfectly with him. Every essence of your soul sinks up to his love. Every desire of your heart, the, the, the true desires, not, not, not the pieces of you that's been distorted and broken by the curse, but the, your true essence, it is built and hand-designed and handcrafted by God to link up and synchronize with Him. You are built for this. There is no greater life or joy, or peace, or fulfillment to be found than in connection to your king. And then in life in his kingdom. You were made for this. See, it may seem like restriction, but it is actually life. He says when we when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, when we do this spiritual worship, when we are not conformed to the world, when we actually allow ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit of God, we find out what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. 
When we actually conform to the image that was built in us, we actually find true life. We actually find real peace. We actually find real healing. We actually find real freedom. Beloved, we have lied to ourselves and told us that freedom in life is found in no restrictions, but we know that's not true. We know that's not true. And if I buy a house that backs up to the freeway, and I don't put a fence up in my backyard, and I let my kid run around and play back there, that's not freedom. That's not love. The restriction, putting the fence up, actually gives freedom. Now she has a whole yard to play in. Right? We know that's true. And yet somehow we have convinced ourselves that freedom is found with no boundaries and no restrictions and we are kings unto ourselves and we are rulers and masters of our own destiny. Beloved, try that for a while. It doesn't work. There's no hope to be found in that. You may be awesome, but you're not awesome enough to reign over your own life. It will not go well for you. And if it does, there's going to be a trail of destruction of other people you've destroyed to get there. You're just not good enough to reign over your own life. That sounds so mean. I don't mean that to put you down. This world is just really big and really complex and really broken and really terrible. And you don't have it in you to reign. But I have good news. You were never meant to. You have a king who reigns for you, who who reigns over you, who is victorious, who has conquered this world and has made a way for you that is the way of life, it is the way you were built for. Beloved, this morning, in the first day of Advent, we reflect on the hope of Advent. The, the idea that when Christ was born, there was something in the soul of mankind saying, we need this. We need to be saved. We need someone to rescue us. Beloved, there is hope in your King. Because He is victorious. Because He reigns. Because he loves you and sees you. You are not a cog in the machine. Jesus is not replacing one terrible tyrant with another. Beloved, Jesus is a different kind of king. He is different than the kings of this world. He is a better king. He is the only king. You can give yourself to him fully. You can do that. And you can do that with joy and with trust and with hope and with anticipation that your rightful king will actually bring you to true life. Because he will. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And we're going to open up the tables for communion. I'm going to encourage you guys to, man, to find people in the room to pray with, to go and find the pastors and be prayed over, to take communion and reflect on the body broken for you, the blood poured out for you. As we take, if, if you want to feel led by God to pray over the church, to, to do those things, I, we're going to open up space to, to do that and to engage 
with what God is saying this morning. But what I want you to hear is this. If you hear this message, if you hear this truth from our Jesus that he is your king, whether you like it or not, but he's a wonderful king. And he's inviting you to joy in life as you submit and sacrifice yourself to him. If you hear that, and, and immediately, immediately something in you flares up because you don't like the idea of submitting, because there are areas of your life that you reign over, and you reign supreme over them, and you don't want to hand them over. Maybe it's sin patterns that you just really like. <laughs> Or maybe it's broken relationships that you have defined how those will go from now on. Or maybe it's how you control your finances and where you put your money. I want to encourage you with something. Challenge you with something. Those things are no hope for you. They may feel like it. Grasping on to that straw of control in your life may feel like hope. You can lie to yourself and you can tell yourself that there's hope in that, but there isn't. There isn't. Hating that person for the rest of your life will not bring you more peace or more joy or more life. Running to that escape for the rest of your life will not bring you more joy and more life. Controlling that aspect, it just, it just won't. There's no hope in it. But beloved, there is hope in Christ. There's hope in your King. He is strong and He is better. And He is there for you. So let us reflect on that this morning. If you need to talk through some of that with someone, you can do it in this space. If you need to get out with one of our pastors later and dig through some stuff, come find one of us. We'll schedule that. We'll set it up. But beloved, let's I'm going to pray, and then let's just take a few minutes to just just deal with what God is saying in your heart right now. Respond in the way you need to. Jesus, you are so good to us. Jesus, you're just so stinking good. We are callous and rebellious people, God. We chase our own desires and we foolishly try and wear the crown of authority and sovereignty of our own lives and God it just doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't work in my life God there are so many things that I hold so tightly from you and I joyfully invite you to be my savior and then I selfishly hold on to the lordship of my own life. God, break me of this. Break us of this. God, you have made us in your image. So we probably belong to you. May we be a people who render ourselves unto you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.